This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. I'm Elliot Gotkin, and in this episode, his social trading platform eToro helps people navigate the ups and downs of the stock market, something for which his first startup came in very handy. A couple of colleagues of mine from the intelligence unit and myself built a company called CD Ride, where we installed video cameras on roller coasters in places like Paramount and Six Flags and sold DVDs, which included your entire ride. Uh, when you came off uh, the train. So, so inside I, the actual roller coaster, in, film people yeah. screaming for dear life. For dear life. Yoni Asya, co-founder and CEO of eToro, welcome to the FNTech podcast. Thank you very much. Always great talking to you, Elliot. Likewise, Yoni. Now, for those that aren't especially familiar with eToro, you are an online trading platform, but perhaps you can just explain to us the concept and how you differ from the likes of Robin Hoods and others that are kind of uh, pitching themselves to millennial investors. Sure. So eToro today is the largest social trading network with over 16 million registered users to the social network where our users can open a brokerage account with eToro to trade commission-free stock trading in 100 different countries, cryptocurrencies, commodities, indices, ETFs. And the uniqueness of the platform is that everyone can actually see what everyone is trading. So you can see the month-to-month uh, performance and PL of all of the users. And using our patent technology copy trading, you can basically replicate people's performance into a part of your portfolio. So if you see a German trader who generated 30% returns on average in the past five years, you can simply click copy, choose an amount of $1,000 and copy him. That will basically open up on those $1,000 proportionally all of the positions that he has in his account. And then every time he trades, it will trade in your account at the same time, the same price and the same proportion. So if he generates 30% returns over the next year, you'll make $300 on your $1,000. Of course, because as we know, future uh, past performance is no indication of uh, future performance, although obviously people will presumably follow the ones who have been most successful. Uh, and of course, this past year, 2020. I'm not sure if this will go out at the beginning of 2021 or, or the end of this year. But uh, like investment banks, volatility is great for online trading, for trading in general. So it must have been a, a pretty bumper year for you. But with COVID, one imagines also quite challenging in terms of running a business. So with COVID, definitely the challenges of running the business is the fact that we have today a thousand employees in 11 different offices around the world. And the majority of employees in eToro are still working from home. That took uh, some adjustment. If you'd asked me a year ago if I think we can run the company with, with every, everybody working from home, I would, uh, I would definitely say no. But that transition actually went relatively smoothly, starting with our offices in Asia and then coming into Israel and Europe and the US. And today, I think... 
what we learned is it's actually it eased uh, the work of our global offices because suddenly everybody is on the same uh, level playing field. So everybody's on Zoom, whether you're in the US or Australia or the UK or Belgium, everybody's the same on video. So I think all in all, it eventually improved a lot of the working processes in eToro. And there's still always a challenge of how do you create the culture, the atmosphere, the friendships and the relationships that uh, we all used to have in eToro. How do we bring that back to life? From a business perspective, well, this is by far the best year that eToro has ever had. We've seen growth across the board of 100 to 300 percent. We saw about three times more new funded accounts this year versus last year. We saw equities trading grow fivefold this year in eToro. We've seen growth now also coming from crypto as we're mid-November crypto rally, hoping to see 2017 again. So all in all, it's definitely been a year where we framed it as the rise of the millennial investor. We see across a hundred different countries, people you know, from their mid-20s to their mid-40s flocking to the stock market. Oh, still a millennial. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're old millennials. So it's definitely uh, interesting to see how, you know, an entire generation is waking up to, you know, an opportunity that's always there. But I, I would generally say once every two, two decades, we see this awakening of a generation to capital markets during a rally. And I think that two things caused it this year. One is people working from home also means they have time to attend to their own financials. And I think on the other hand, the COVID-19 caused a significant volatility in the markets, a lot of interesting opportunities in March, because we're seeing, you know, once in a lifetime paradigm shift from, you know, the traditional gas and oil and utilities industries or the offline industries into the working from home industries, into healthcare, into disruptive technologies like renewable energies, and driverless cars. And I think a lot of these trends resonate very, very well with this new generation of investors. I, I guess this new generation of investors probably seeing that they can't afford to buy apartments or houses in the cities they live in, maybe also trying to find another way to uh, to get some return on, on any money that they, they may have. I'm just wondering if you, you talked about some of the explosive growth you've seen this year. Can you put any numbers on that in terms of revenues? Is eToro now profitable as a company? We are very profitable. We do not disclose companies' uh, revenues at this point, but we're of significant size. And I think this year we're on track to generate about $2 trillion of trading volume on eToro. Wow. Uh, Big number there. Uh, So look, I mean, I just want to take you back a little bit. You talked about, uh, I think, once in every decade or couple of decades opportunity. You've, of course, been around for more than a decade. You were founded, if I'm not uh, wrong, in 2007. So eToro has already been through the global financial crisis. It's been through Brexit and now COVID. But actually, eToro wasn't your first startup, right? Yeah, when I left my army service, uh, a couple of colleagues of mine from the intelligence unit and myself build a company called CD Ride, where we installed video cameras on roller coasters in places like Paramount and Six Flags and sold DVDs 
which included your entire ride uh, when you came off uh, the train. So, so inside I, the actual roller coaster, this in, would film people yeah. screaming for dear life. For dear life, it was edited in real time. And I spent a significant part of my early 20s in parks in the US coding, coding away while a roller coaster is going at uh, incredible speed above my head. Uh, was that successful? I mean, I don't want to... Excuse the pun, was it a roller coaster ride? I mean, how, how did that company go? Well, we eventually sold it to Kodak. It was sold to Kodak just as I started eToro. And Kodak was back then the leading company where you come off roller coaster and you buy a picture. So it seemed to them like a very sort of synergetic product or complementary product to, steal, to steals. And, but since then, obviously, we know what happened with Kodak. So I haven't been following up on that specific product out of the Kodak family. It wasn't, it wasn't you that brought down Kodak then, I hope. No, no, no. Okay, well, that, that's, I guess, an interesting uh, idea. But, but I mean, in terms of the idea for eToro, how do you go from roller coasters to capital markets and social trading and everything? What, was it something that was festering in your mind since you were a child? First of all, it's how do you go from one roller coaster to another, right? right? To capital markets. So I've been a fan of capital markets since I was very young. Uh, I started trading when I was about 13. I got some shares in my uh, father's public company to my bar mitzvah. And he told me and taught me a lot about capital markets. So I, I used to be as uh, sort of, you know, during my high school years, I was a fan of capital markets, looking at what's happening in the markets, trading, and I was also a programmer and sort of the unification of financial services or capital markets and technology have always inspired me since I was very young. When we started thinking about eToro back in 2005 and six, my brother who co-founded eToro with me comes from a background of industrial design or product design, and he always used to sort of make fun of me that I have an accountant fetish uh, sitting in front of multiple charts and screens uh, and excels and looking at the pink newspapers with a marker. And he basically to always used to tell me like, why does it sound like fun? It sounds exciting when you and David, our father, are talking about what's happening in capital markets, but the user experience is really horrifying. And when we started brainstorming, it was all about how do we simplify the user experience so we can attract more people into capital markets. And that is what eventually led us to set up eToro with the vision of opening the global markets for everyone to trade and invest in a simple and transparent way. So we, tr we truly believe that more people around the world should actually buy stock and invest and understand how to invest their own money in the market. But what makes you, you know, you're, you're here in, in Tel Aviv or just outside Tel Aviv, you're, you're deciding what to do after, after the army, you go into roller coasters, you've always been in, interested in, in capital markets. But it's one thing to be interested in something and maybe have an idea that, hey, this is bad, this should be better, and then actually going ahead and doing it. I mean, you, your family, if I understand correctly, was, was actually quite entrepreneurial anyway. Is that something that kind of you know, was it was in your blood from the beginning and made you think, yeah, I can set up a company and, and make a go of it on my own? 
I think that helped a lot. So my father was uh, an entrepreneur and a founder of a Swiss bank and then uh, an Israeli bank. My That's my grandfather. My father was a founder of a software company in the 80s and then took his company public on NASDAQ in uh, early 90s. And that was the first software company Israeli software company trading on NASDAQ. This was Ma so, Magic Software, was that right? Yes, that's Magic Software, which is t still trading quite nicely on NASDAQ. And I, I think, you know, we are a very high-tech sort of family. So a lot of dinners always in my house was what's happening in the market, both capital markets and high-tech markets. So for us, understanding sort of this ecosystem where you know it's possible to actually build something and raise money. And I think, by the way, you know, if you compare today to 14 years ago, I think today it's even easier and more straightforward to more people that they can come up with an idea, they can build software, they can launch that software and they can raise funds. So the market has progressed quite significantly from, you know, the 15 years uh, prior to us starting to talk about eToro and my father taking magic public in uh, the US to where we talked about eToro and founded eToro, but still, you know, the internet was relatively early stage. Social networks were almost non-existent. The concept of cloud didn't exist. The term fintech didn't exist to today where, you know, it's, it's quite, I think, straightforward and it's really for people to understand it is possible for them to come up with, with a concept, to build it, to hack around it, and to raise funds to execute on, on a vision. Was it quite easy for you to raise funds and, and turn your vision into reality? Was it quite hard? It was, it's always hard. So, you know, anything that requires work is, is never as simple because there are always challenges. I think we met... 40 to 50 different investors in our first round of financing. And when you do that, you have to also hear a lot of no's. So I think the first part of, you know, trying to build a product and trying to set a vision and a concept for your company, you're going to get a lot of people who tell you you're in the wrong direction. And, and that's challenging because you're, talk, you're talking to smart people. So a lot of people told me, very straightforward back in 2006, we can't set up a global financial services company out of Israel. And that the first thing I should do is move to the US, London, or Hong Kong if I want to set up a global financial institution. So people didn't realize that consumers are going to consume fintech services or financial services over the internet Without, without the need of the sort of local brand uh, or brick and mortars. So that was a very clear statement and a great example of why I'm very thankful for having my father as a mentor. What he used to tell me, and this is again 2006-07, there's no fintech. There isn't a single fintech company, I think, in Israel back then. But my father told me that in the 90s, when he went to raise funds for Magic Software, a software company out of Israel, and went to the Silicon Valley, they told him he can't raise money to, for a software company out of Israel uh, because uh, Israel is good at exporting oranges and, and weapons 
And uh, if he wants to deal with software, he should move to the Silicon Valley. So again, 16 years later, I've been told exactly the same thing, same tone of voice, uh, different but very smart people about financial services. So that led me to understand that while it isn't the reality back then, it could become reality 10 years or 15 years after. Of course, nowadays, I guess investors know that Israelis don't necessarily take no for an answer or uh, or if they believe in themselves, they're going to go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, but I mean, were there any moments at all during the past 13 years where you thought, you know, maybe the, the naysayers were right? Maybe Maybe this just ain't going to work. I think we've been able to scale the company relatively fast for me to constantly believe in our ability to, to scale. So the first year of operation, 2008, we generated $5.5 million revenues. In our second year of operation, we generated $17 million revenues. And since then, we've grown more than a 30x. So you know, we, we've seen significant growth across time. And that growth has always sort of fueled uh, my ambition and my vision to how big, uh, how big can eToro become, and how big the market is, the thirst in the market of retail investors globally to participate in the markets, to have someone help them understand how to make their first investment and what are the and what should they invest in in the markets. So I think we're still really scratching the surface. There were a lot of, as you mentioned before, a lot of challenges. Global financial crisis was a big challenge. This is the first year of operation for eToro. We're seeing great volatility in the markets. We're seeing revenues climb. But we also realize that our money in the banks isn't our money and that some of our banks might go uh, bankrupt and if I hold customer funds in a bank that goes bankrupt, that's a very challenging problem. So we had to sort of diversify basically who we work with with the banks. How do you open new banks? How do you think about the credit, the, the default credit risk of a bank? Because you need to make sure that your funds are safe. For a financial institution uh, and for a young fintech entrepreneur, that, that's a really sort of troubling see, thing to see is back then at some point, you know, everything was shut down, like people didn't answer the phone at some financial institutions. Right. And I'm just wondering, I mean, did that uh, realization maybe, was that one of the sparks that kind of got you interested in, in cryptocurrencies in in diversifying away? Because I think you had, you know, eToro got a bit of a boost early on by some early bets on, on Bitcoin, right? Definitely, the global financial crisis led me to think that something is broken in the current financial industry. So what I realized back then is nothing really is connected. And at some point, if a large bank doesn't answer your phone, you can't execute and you know the systems are down. They were basically melting. And since we dealt quite a bit with currencies, you know, what I've seen is like, you know, it's it's just books and records in banks and banks are here one day and another day they might not be here. And, and you know, they're not 24-7 necessarily and they definitely don't always answer the phone. Uh, so you realize that something is broken and the system really isn't connected. It's not, uh, it's very far from the vision of a, of a let's call it today, a blockchain world.
So in 2010, when I started looking at Bitcoin, I already had that notion that eventually there's going to be money of the internet. I had a lot of discussions with people about it. I wrote about it in blog posts about when will we see the money of the internet, how the money of the internet will work. So when I started looking at Bitcoin in 2010, I, I immediately sort of, you know, had this aha moment exactly the same way that I had when I first used the internet in the early 90s. So it suddenly felt like this is real money that's really changing hands and you're able to send and receive it 24-7 from anywhere to anywhere in low cost in an efficient way. And for me, dealing with financial services, with a lot of clearing and settlement and transfer of funds, you know, this was an aha moment of this is how money should look like in the future. So we started buying a bit of crypto to eToro back in 2011. What price was uh, that, Yoni? $5. $5. Uh, yeah, so we have, I still have these records for Mount Gox of buying Bitcoin for eToro for $5 and $10 and $15. So we bought some. Uh, just to, again, just to experiment with the technology, we bought about $50,000 $50, worth of uh, crypto back then. And then we worked a lot to enable Bitcoin trading on the platform. It took us about two years since we started trading in crypto to actually launching uh, Bitcoin on the Toro trading platform late 2013. And we were the only regulated broker who was actually offering uh, Bitcoin for a while. And then Mount Gox happened, end of 2013, beginning of 2014. And we've seen the prices of Bitcoin drop from $1,200 to about, I think, $200. And for three years, only about 2% of our users traded crypto. So this was something I was extremely passionate about. Some members of my board was, were extremely worried about because of the sort of bad original connotation of Bitcoin with illicit money transfers. I think that's behind us now. Everybody understands the benefit of Bitcoin and its potential, even JP Morgan and, and Jamie Dimon and BlackRock and PayPal, etc. But when we launched in 2017 Ethereum, I think that is what sparked a lot of what we've seen in 2017 and 18, where we grew about 500% during those two years during the crypto bubble. And what we've seen is that people came to buy ETH on eToro at the $8 and $15. And then when Ethereum started to skyrocket towards $400, it basically became viral. And we've had customers knocking on our doors to set up accounts, to fund their accounts. Then when we added the likes of XRP, which went from 15 cents to $3 back then, again, we've seen uh, a growth from... 200 new funded accounts a day to 20,000 new funded accounts a day in, from January 2017 to December 2017. So that was really mind-blowing growth that we've had to deal with in that specific time. And your association, I'm pretty sure I read your association with, with cryptocurrencies goes even deeper. Did I read at one point that you lent office space or gave office space to the founder of Ethereum? So Vitalik, when we started dealing with cryptocurrencies, we talked a lot about the tokenization of real world assets on top of the Bitcoin network. 
And we started a project called Colored Coins. And that project, the concept was, let's take a Bitcoin and color that Bitcoin as gold or euros and dollars. So we have tokenized assets on top of the Bitcoin network. And I actually uh, went on Bitcoin Talk, which back then was the largest forum for anything around Bitcoin. And this is back in 2012. And I offered bounties for people who want to help me develop the concept of colored coins, write the white paper, code parts of it. And one of the people who sort of offered his help was Vitalik. So the original paper of colored coins was written by myself and Vitalik. It's quite detailed on how can you tokenize assets in general. It was sort of the predecessor to ERC-20 tokens on top of the Bitcoin network. It actually required at some point even changes to the Bitcoin protocol, what's called BEEPS, that was updated. And I think, I don't remember exactly the date, I think it was end of 13, Vitalik actually came to Israel uh, to spend about a month in our offices to work with the team on the Colored Coins project. I think eventually a lot of uh, different views and discussions within the Bitcoin community, so people who are familiar with the Bitcoin community know there are uh, always sort of different voices moving to different places, there was a, a sort of very tense dialogue about the implement the right implementation of colored coins and colored coins eventually forked to uh, several different protocols that tried to implement tokenization on top of the bitcoin network and at that point uh, vitalik basically went to found ethereum and to build his own blockchain after sort i think realizing how hard it is to change uh, people's mind and perception on the Bitcoin network. I think, by the way, he's he still is seeing a lot of resistance from maxis, right? From people who are uh, pure Bitcoinists who don't like the entire concept of Ethereum or tokenization or smart contracts. Right. Sounds like sounds like the church almost. So look, I mean, we're, we're speaking about Bitcoin now. I, I don't want to dwell too much more on, on cryptocurrencies, uh, but you, we're speaking about Bitcoin now. It's as we speak, it's in the middle of another of another bull run. I think I saw Citibank, one analyst there suggesting it could hit three hundred and eighteen thousand dollars by the end of 2021. What's your prediction, Yoni? I don't like giving price predictions, especially on. not short-term ones. I, I, you know, I had a couple of good predictions in the past, so I'm good at long-term predictions. So, you know, 12 years ago, I said interest rates are going to go into zero and negative, and here we are today. I had a bet that Netflix is going to be bigger than Fox, and, and here we are today. And it does seem like Tesla is the largest car manufacturer in the world from a market cap point of view. Uh, so I, I think if you, but in all of these were imaginary, you know, three years ago, five years ago, and 10 years ago, I, I think Bitcoin's long-term trajectory is definitely north of $50,000 and probably more. I think the brand awareness and acceptance of Bitcoin is quite mind-blowing as to potentially a puppet master behind the scenes enabling this to happen. I think the adoption of banks into Bitcoin, of PayPal into Bitcoin, I think Square's innovation into Bitcoin, regulators' openness into how Bitcoin works and how to regulate companies that offer services in Bitcoin. I think all of that is going towards a trajectory that Bitcoin is becoming a store, a digital store of value of the internet. 
And I think if gold today is at $9 trillion and Bitcoin, I think, is at about $350 billion, there is still a significant sort of leeway for Bitcoin to become that digital store of value. Now, whether this happens in 12 months or in five years is is a great question. So uh, I don't necessarily uh, know how to sort of Uh, estimate when it's going to happen but i think within the next five to ten years we're still we're see we're going to see a significant growth in the usage and value of bitcoin okay i mean you you had uh, dinner with warren buffett i think a couple of years ago did you get his take on on bitcoin i mean what generally did you did you learn from that dinner and, and how did it actually come about so first of all, it was this year. I agree that this year looks like five different years, but this was just early this year. Uh, so my guess is I'm probably one of the last people Warren Buffett saw before he went into lockdown. Uh, so this was a very kind of invitation from the founder of Tron, Justin Sun. He bid on eBay to have a, a lunch uh, with Warren Buffett. I think he paid over $4 million for that opportunity that eventually became a dinner because it was postponed once. And when that dinner happened, for me, this was a, a life-changing event. And, and the reason, by the way, is not crypto, because we came here to Warren Buffett, uh, a couple of people from the crypto industry, to try and talk to him about cryptocurrencies, smart contracts, what can you do on the blockchain? He was very open to blockchain technology in general. He is one of the largest shareholders in a lot of companies that on the board level are talking about blockchain. He's good friends with Bill Gates, who's a big believer in blockchain technology. But I think regarding Bitcoin, he is not a big fan of Bitcoin. He is not also a big fan, by the way, of gold. So I said before, Bitcoin, in my view, is digital gold or digital store of value. But Warren Buffett has the sentence with, I, I think in general is a great sentence. He says, I want to invest in things which generate real value. And if you take all the gold today in the world, you'll fill a football stadium full with gold. And if you take the same $9 trillion, you can actually uh, buy Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Netflix, and then probably Alibaba and Tencent as well. And he, what he said is, but think about all these companies you just bought. You come back after 10 years, they created products, they hired probably hundreds of thousands of people and fed their families, and they generated cash flow, they innovated, they created things. And then go and look at the football stadium and what do you see? You still see the same chunk of gold there. So his view is I want to invest in uh, companies that generate uh, real value. The alternative, by the way, which I think is why you need to hold Bitcoin as part of your portfolio, is to hedge against the crisis or to hedge against governments collapsing, against fiat currency devaluing. But when you talk to Warren Buffett, his view is all of your money, in any case, should be invested in capital markets. So you don't need that hedge because capital markets are already hedged versus you know dollars or euros etc. And he doesn't like to hedge versus to invest in companies who generate value. I think the biggest thing for me taking from the dinner 
is hearing one of the best investors of all times talking about the fact that, you know, investing in the markets is simple and reading financials of companies where you understand what their product and what they're selling is something that people should uh, be able to do and should do. And his very adamant approach that more people should invest in capital markets and uh, that if people made their own research and uh, read financial reports and invested in the companies that they love and understand, that you can generate double-digit returns over you know the course of 30 and 50 years every year. So hearing that from the world's probably, you know, one of the world's best, if not the world's best investors was quite refreshing because when you talk to a lot of people in capital markets, they always try to make you think that managing money and investing in stocks is, is complex and it's difficult and nobody can beat the markets. But here's a person who beat the markets consecutively, I don't know, probably, you know, 45 out of the last 50 years telling me to my face, I can definitely do this for the next 50 years. And if I had less money, I would probably do it even better. Well, it must have been amazing for someone who's, uh, who like you, who's been a, a fan of capital markets uh, since he was a child to kind of see one of the, in person, in the flesh, one of the legends of uh, investing. Uh, but just kind of bringing things back to eToro, you've now been there with the company, which you founded with your brother for 13 years. What's the end game? Is it to kind of build out more verticals and perhaps eventually become a, a full service uh, bank? Is it to perhaps to have an IPO? Do you think it, a, an acquisition, buying other companies or being bought, being merged? What, what, what do you think is the most likely? Game? All of the above. <laughs> so we are launching eToro Money this year, which enables you to have a debit card issued by eToro and enable you a frictionless experience of depositing and withdrawing funds from eToro to your virtual bank account with eToro and the debit card, which enables you to spend uh, your money directly from your investment account anywhere. A, a lot of very cool features and thinking went into the concept of eToro money and how it integrates with our investment platform. So that's definitely in our near future. And we're looking to expand it to Europe, to US and to Asia in the next couple of years. We're building more products in eToro, whether it's around open banking, whether uh, it's around our new copy portfolios, which are constantly expanding and offering people the ability to invest in thematic investment products with the likes of renewable energy and driverless cars. So our investment team in eToro has grown quite a bit with our chief investment officer coming from the largest investment house in Israel and expanding his team here, bringing in more, again, professional knowledge, portfolios for our users to invest in and curating the popular investor program. And as we grow, we're hiring more and more professional analysts all around the globe, from Australia to the US to numerous countries in Europe and Asia to enable us to understand better the markets to bring in more opportunities and content about what's happening in the markets and in parallel expanding more markets on the eToro platform, whether it's something interesting like Aramco, 
the largest oil company in the world trading in Saudi Arabia, which was launched on eToro to more stock markets and more stocks on the eToro platform itself. You know, we want to take the company from where it is today and, and scale it by another five to 10 times over the next uh, five years and truly build a, a global digital investment platform. And we'll be able I to think, maybe uh, trade eToro on eToro. I mean, you think an IPO is likely at some point? We, You will definitely be able to trade eToro on eToro at some point in time. Okay. Well, we also mentioned briefly how your grandfather and your father were both entrepreneurs. If I'm not mistaken, your father's also quite a well-known and successful angel investor here in Israel. I'm just wondering, in addition to being your mentor, how helpful was it? I mean, do you feel that you had like an amazing advantage over other people because he knew other investors, he could open doors for you? Or were you, was it a level playing field with, with other, you know, young people coming out of the army looking to, to, to found their own startups? I think the biggest advantage I had is the fact uh, that I could uh, use his knowledge and I had somebody to talk to about the process that we're going through. We made a decision, which in retrospect was a bad decision. So I do not necessarily recommend to make the decisions for anybody who has that opportunity. But we didn't allow our father to invest in eToro at the seed stage. That was from a financial point of view, just a mistake. But we wanted to sort of do it on our own. So we used actually a banker for our first round of financing here in Israel, which helped us open a lot of doors and meet uh, with a lot of different investors. So the majority of, of meetings we had came from that banker who sort of introduced us to a lot of people in the industry. And I think the fact that some of them ha have known my father and the fact that we could look at the term sheet and understand what do we need to comment on that term sheet? Because my mother also has a law firm, deals in high tech. I think that definitely helped. I think, you know, I see some of my friends whose parents are in real estate and they're in real estate. Some of my friends who their parents are doctors and they're doctors. I think some things that you learn at your home give you definitely an advantage as you, you start your own career. I do think you can learn this from other mentors. So I don't think you can't be a doctor unless your parents were a doctor. And I don't think you can't be an entrepreneur if your parents aren't entrepreneurs. Uh, but I think that knowledge now in Israel is out there. There are many entrepreneurs who are happy to both meet new founders as well as invest in new founders. So that I think today it's, it's an easier ecosystem definitely than 30 years ago. But even easier than 15 years ago. Okay. And Johnny, just finally, many founders we have on the show, they talk about the failures they've had in the past or the near failures that they experienced and how these were formative experiences and how they actually helped them go on to succeed and get to where they are today. I'm just wondering what for you was the most important event perhaps that you experienced that helped you get to where you are today. And if you think that perhaps judging by your past without having had any, that, that failure is overrated. I think, again, there, there are constant challenges in running a, a business and scaling it. And I, I'm not a big, I think fail fast is like a, a good intuitive phrase. But, you know, we've 
changed products. We've launched products that didn't succeed. We, we killed them. We replaced them. We had different types of issues across time. We had to expand into the U.S., then realize it's a bit premature. So sort of withdraw th- to the U.S. just to come back now with, with lots of sort of power and scale back into the U.S. market. So I think if I look at the entire 13 years, there has been a lot of sort of milestone which were significant because we realized something doesn't work. A big part of what, again, sort of created eToro and led me to understand that financial services industry as a whole industry is broken is the global financial crisis. That was definitely a pivotal sort of time for eToro during 2008, sort of understanding how broken the markets are and also sort of led me to eventually fall in love in the crypto markets. I think we realized at some point that we had to figure out how to build trust that it's not enough because we're not you know, based in the US or in the UK. We're a very global company with customers from all around the world that we constantly need to improve and iterate about how do we generate the feeling for somebody in Italy or Germany or Spain that we are a trusted platform in that region and that always required from us a lot of work, maybe significantly more than a local company. And I think, you know, other than that, again, a lot of challenges that we've learned for and improved because of them. Okay. Yoni Asya, CEO and co-founder of eToro. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Elliot. Always time. a pleasure. Thanks, Yoni. Uh, Yoni, just uh, one kind of final thing. Do, do, do the Saudis know that they're being that the Aramco is being traded on an Israeli platform? Do they mind? I am not sure. Okay. <laughs> but hopefully now it's uh, it's going to get better. Now it's hopefully kosher. we're going to see normalization with Saudi as well. It's all kosher now. All right, Yoni. Thanks very much. Over the years, I've interviewed Yoni and listened to him speak a number of times, but I've never heard the story about his roller coaster ride startup, a metaphor, if ever there was one, for the journeys so many fintech founders embark on, especially when they're related to the stock market. For Yoni, though, the ups seem to far outweigh the downs. And if all else fails, he'll always be able to dine out on the story that he bought Bitcoin for five bucks. And even now, at around thirty-five or forty thousand dollars, depending on which time of day you listen to this podcast, he truly believes that it can go much higher and that it represents the future. So thank you, Yoni Asia, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Program. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates as well as listen to all previous episodes via the website, f-in-tech.com. If you've got any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at podfintech or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.